It's a joy to be with you again to continue this message entitled The Good Samaritan and The Great Surprise. Last week we looked uh, at the story of the Good Samaritan and observed how he responded to the need of the man who had been beaten and left half dead along the side of the road. And we saw that this good neighborliness that the Good Samaritan exhibited is something that Jesus instructed the scribe who was inquiring of him, uh, who is my neighbor? You know, he was convicted by the fact that having said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus responded, you speak rightly. Go and do that. And then he realized, I'm not quite fulfilling the spirit or the letter of that particular commandment. And so he looks for technicality. Well, who is my neighbor? You know, how can we be sure I'm not loving my neighbor? And so Jesus then tells the story of the good Samaritan. Now today, we're going to be now continuing on the same theme, but we're going to shift over to a different passage that illustrates some of the same principles. And as, Dan, as Brian has shared from Isaiah 58, that God is very much concerned that we show our love for him by the way we love our neighbor. This is why the greatest commandment comes in two parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And we saw that the reason why these two have to come together is because God doesn't need anything. He is all sufficient. There's nothing we can offer to God And so he has instead asked us to do whatever we would hope to do for him if he ever had a need, to do that for our neighbor. As in those obituaries that say, in lieu of flowers, rather than sending flowers, please donate to my favorite charity. And God's favorite charity is your neighbor. And he would have you show your love and your honor toward him by the way you respond to the needs in the lives of those around you. So we'll begin in this message. I'm not going to read the entire passage because I want to let the the truth of it kind of unfold in stages. And if I read the entire passage, we kind of lose that reveal, okay? So I'm just going to read the last verse of the passage, and then we'll dive in. Matthew 25 and verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help me to be faithful to your word. Help me, Lord, not to get distracted by other messages that could be in other sermons, but to stay focused on this passage and these truths and to nail this so well into our hearts and minds that we will never forget it, that it will be a foundational stone in our Christian lives. Lord, may we be able to look back upon this particular message and last week's as well as as a new beginning in our Christian lives as we become more effectively doers of your word and not hearers only. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Being born again, being born from above, opens our eyes. And when it opens our eyes, we are able to, as Jesus puts it, see the kingdom of God. 
In John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, speaking to Nicodemus in a midnight meeting, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount uh, instructs his people, those who are able to call God their father, but seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these things, these things that the Gentiles are so obsessed with, you know, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? All these things, Jesus said, all of these things, your father knows you need them. And these things will be added to you as you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what does that mean? Well, I don't have time to go into all of the background on this, but let me just make a statement. God's kingdom is a set of right relationships. That's what it is. It's a set of right relationships, and those relationships are moving through time. And so they are changing from one year to another, from one season to another. You have that baby in your arms right now, and that baby... <clears throat> going to grow up. I can tell you, I've got seven. They, they grow up. And there comes a time, maybe toward the very end of your life, when they are holding you in their arms. And the right relationship of loving your children, loving your spouse, honoring and obeying your parents, living in right relationship to your neighbors being a faithful and loyal friend, being a, a faithful and loyal brother or sister in Christ, being a neighbor to those who are all around you in your community, participating in the civil life wherever God has placed you. All of these things are relationships that can be either right or wrong. And when those can, relationships are right, that's what the Bible refers to as righteousness. The righteousness of God is seen in all of the right relationships that we have with him and with one another. And that's why if our relationship with God is right, he insists that we bring the relationships we have with one another into rightness as well. And so when we seek first, when we make it our highest priorities, it's to put the kingdom of God, these right relationships in the strongest possible place that they can be, then through those relationships, all of the things that we need flow to us. But they don't stop there. They also flow through us to others in their time of need. And so God is a righteous and wise and good sovereign. And so his kingdom is going to be a well-run, effective kingdom. An effective means of provision for all those who trust in the king. So all of this sets the stage for us to show our love for God by the way we love our neighbor as ourselves. So we're back to the question from the Good Samaritan and the scribe, the story of the Good Samaritan. The scribe is asking Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? So which of these, Jesus asked him after telling the story of the Good Samaritan, was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Jesus has flipped the question. The, the lawyer wanted to know, the scribe wanted to know, who is my neighbor? So I'll know if I've done my job or not. And Jesus is saying, who was neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? And his response allows this scribe to come to the realization that the answer, the question is supposed to be, who do I get to love, not who do I have to love? Of all these people around me that have various needs at various times, which among them or who among them do I get to respond to as a way, in a way that is pleasing to God. 
And so the question, who do I get to love? Who do I get to be a neighbor to? Now, I am convinced, I, I am a, a practical theologian. I come from a Reformed perspective. I believe that God is sovereign, that he has set the stage for us to be the people of God in the world today. And the way in which he has allowed us to participate in this display of his wisdom and his goodness and his glory is by giving to us as a gift the ability to see the needs of our neighbor as an opportunity to show our love towards him. And that that gift, that ability, that is our salvation and it is the essence of what it means to be saved. We are, we are transferred out of the kingdoms of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. We are saved from a life of sin and foolishness into a life of wisdom and goodness. And the way that it works is that he gives us a new heart. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit as we see in Ezekiel chapter 36. And the result of all of that is what we so kind of tritely refer to as being saved. It's so profound. What God has done for us is so deep and thorough. And it helps for us to understand how these pieces fit together. And so we come back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10. A very famous passage. But so often we read through it like we already know what it says, and so we miss the subtle truth that's being revealed here. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the unmerited favor of God that has allowed you to be saved, and that salvation is coming through faith. And that faith, or that entire process of grace and faith, is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And because it is a gift, it is not of works. You don't earn it, and you can't pay God back for it. Because if you could, then you would have a basis upon which to boast. There will be no boasting in heaven. We're not going to be there saying, amazing me. We're going to be saying, amazing grace. We're not going to say, I was smarter than the average sinner, because I had the good sense to repent. No, we're going to be saying, God rescued me out of foolishness and blindness and stupidity. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and he made me alive. That's what we mean when we're saying amazing grace. Now, then Paul suddenly takes a turn in his argument here, and he says... For we are his workmanship. We didn't create ourselves. We didn't make ourselves. We can't even refine ourselves. We are entirely dependent upon his workmanship in our lives. He's working on us. This is not a past tense, once and for all thing. It's a progressive process by which we become more and more like Jesus. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has created us in Christ for the purpose of doing things. Okay? And we're told here that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's prepared beforehand. Now, we cannot boast in our salvation because it is a gift. From, it's a gift from God by which we are prepared to do good works. But God is also working on the other side of the equation and has prepared good works for us to do. So we are perfectly fitted to the project. He's created us in Christ Jesus for good works and he's prepared the good works beforehand for us to walk in. So when we step onto the stage of our lives... Everything is set and ready for us simply to do one simple thing. And that is to show our love for God by the way we love and care for our neighbors 
in their time of need. Now, I emphasize this word need because sometimes we overlook that and we, we make the mistake of thinking that just general not niceness and general kindness is just, that's it. But no, the scriptures are very consistent as you're gonna see here today. We're supposed to responding to people in their need. So this ability or inability, as the case may be, to see the image of God in others and to honor that image of God by loving and care and kindness and generosity, that is the basis for what, what I call the great surprise. So we've all heard of the, the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. We've all heard of the great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Well, here we have the great surprise. And the great surprise begins in Matthew 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all nations will be gathered before him. Now, when it refers to nations here, the word is ethnos. We're dealing with all of the different kinds of people from all over the world. But we're dealing with individuals, which becomes clear as he continues this teaching. He's going to gather people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And he will separate them from one another. Not one nation from another, but from one individual or another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now this is a very common image in Israel. A shepherd has to divide the sheep from the goats. There's a different purpose for these two, but in this particular case, you don't want to be a goat. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Now what Jesus is about to say is crucial to our understanding of what it means to be born again. To be able to see the kingdom of God and enter the kingdom of God and seek the kingdom of God in order that we can participate in the kingdom of God. Because if we do not see this in that light, then we are stuck with a very difficult passage that would make it seem as though we are saved by our works. That we're saved by things we do rather than doing things because we are saved. And so that's what I want to try to unpack and Position in such a way that you can see that the, the object is not for you to be a better person, but rather for you to be born again. And if you are born again, you will find yourself standing among the sheep. And if you are not born again, you will find yourself standing among the goats. So, can anyone be saved by their good works? The answer is no, a resounding no with an exclamation point. Does salvation result in good works? Yes. Salvation will result in good works. And again, with an exclamation point. And so we see in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father. This is Jesus. Jesus is the king. Okay. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now here's a pretty good list of ways in which to love your neighbor as yourself. Briefly, let's just point out here that I was hungry and you gave me food is not a welfare system. It is a moment in time in which somebody is in need in the moment and the need is responded to out of the resources that the neighbor has to offer. 
And it's intended to set the stage for relationship to take this farther. But it is not intended to create a dependency that cannot be sustained. Now we need to think about that because it's very easy for us to be pushed into the mind that, well, I've got to somehow figure out how to feed all the people in my town. No. You are to respond to an individual neighbor in need of food in a moment. And you can take them out and have dinner, or you can bring them into your home and have a, have a meal. But the point is that that meal becomes a stepping stone into a relationship that allows you to do more than just feed that, that belly, but rather, as they say, to teach the person how to fish. Now, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Now, I think it's important to point out here, and because we're dealing with a crisis in our, com- our world today, our community, of homelessness. Are we responsible to house the homeless? Is that what this is saying? I don't believe it is. For the simple reason that God is good and wise. And so rather than housing the homeless, we are commanded to take in the stranger. A stranger, when he comes to town, is very vulnerable. He, he doesn't know anyone. It's possible that the local, uh, what should be the local authorities, might not deal with him justly. This reminds me of the passage about being kind to the alien in your midst, the person who's not from around here, and who could easily be taken advantage of. I'm reminded of the angels when they came to Sodom and, and Lot took them in. I was a stranger. I was not from around here. And you took me in. That's what this is referring to. The consequences of issues like homelessness are, are, can be traced to public policy. It can be traced to housing regulations. It can, it can be traced to zoning laws. You know, there are all kinds of ways in which you can create a, uh, a crisis in housing. And that is not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about dealing with an individual who is in your presence, who is now your neighbor, because they're geographically positioned in your presence, and they need a place to stay in a momentary way, not in a way that produces a dependence. Maybe my, my politics are slipping through here, but I, I believe that this is true. He says... I was naked and you clothed me. Now the nakedness that we're talking about here is not the kind of nakedness of immodesty, but it's the nakedness of maybe uh, simply not being able to find adequate attire. And therefore, we're generous. We give someone something to wear. Now, the circumstances today are much different. We're living in a much more affluent society. This, the likelihood of someone being naked because of uh, some kind of poverty is unlikely. We're more likely to face the nakedness of immodesty. But in any case, it's a response to the fact that God cares about these needs. And he wants us to respond to them in the moment, out of the resources we have, so that we are showing our love for God by the way we deal with our neighbor. I was sick and you visited me. Now here we have something we can do. There are people, especially the elderly, who have illnesses and are are housebound and unable to get out. And we are able to not just visit them, but to show up with the things they need. Groceries, their medications, uh, their mail. (laughs) All kinds of ways in which we visit them and, and we come to make their lives easier. But again... Not in the sense of, of adopting them as an ongoing dependent, but rather as a neighbor that we are constantly responding to them as we become aware of their need. We don't go around the neighborhood asking people, do you have a couch you need to move? Can I help you? We respond to the need as we become aware of it. I was in prison and you came to me. You know, not everybody who's in prison is in prison because they are a criminal. 
Sometimes they're in prison because they got on the wrong side of uh, some kind of political issue. Sometimes it has to do with persecution. Sometimes it has to do with false accusation. It's very easy for us, especially today with our modern media, to assume that every, assume that every accusation is true. But it's not. And we see this around the world. How is it that we can be so confident that not every accusation made against someone in China uh, is not necessarily true, and yet somehow every accusation made here in the States is? We have to go and investigate the situation and be firm with people who are guilty. But that doesn't mean we have to be unkind. It may be that they're coming to faith in Christ, sitting in that prison, and they have an opportunity now, as, as uh, Paul and Barnabas did, you know, to uh, reach the jailer with the gospel. And so these are all acts of kindness that we do because our neighbor has a need and we're responding to that need. So the sheep are not saved because they loved others but rather they loved others because they are saved. This is important. The good works that we do as Christians, we do not do in order to be saved, but rather we do these good works because we are saved. And this is the fruit that flows out of that right relationship with God and that right relationship with one another. Anything else would be a works-based salvation. And that we know from so much of Scripture is not, is never the case. So, can you see the Good Samaritan standing here among the sheep? So, next question. And this is the great surprise, by the way. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when... That's the key word right now, by the way, if you want to make your tally mark. There it is. When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick? Or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Now, can you imagine the shock wave that runs through the crowd when Jesus said, You did it to me? The jaws are dropping. The whole room is filled with a kind of a. <gasps> Catching of the breath. We did it to you? The righteous did not know this at the time. They were only seeing and responding to the needs of others around them because they had a new heart and a new spirit and a love for God that needed to be expressed in acts of kindness toward others. But now Jesus makes it clear that every time you responded to a neighbor in need, you did it for me. And in doing so, welcome into the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is strong stuff. This is the kind of thing that should revolutionize the way we look at everything in our lives. God's favorite charity really is our neighbor in their time of need. So every time we encounter a need, it is our opportunity to honor the image of God in others and in doing so to invest in our own eternal treasures. And God is not offended by that holy self-interest. Holy is an H-O-L-Y. But this great surprise will cut both ways, as we saw in our opening passage. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left hand, this, this is the goats, so, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Hell was never prepared for human beings. When we follow Satan in his rebellion against God, we go to where he's going to go. But God did not prepare hell for human beings. He prepared it for the devil and his angels. You say, well, why does God even need a hell? Because these are eternal beings. Satan is an eternal, immortal being. The angels, the fallen angels, are immortal beings. The demons are immortal beings. Where do you put immortal beings? <laughs> How do you put them out of the presence of God? Well, one way would be a bottomless pit. How does a bottomless pit work? Now, we're dealing with cosmic metaphysics at this point, you know. I personally, I believe that a bottomless pit is an eternal falling downward into deeper and darker levels of reality. It's not a matter of just falling to the center of the earth because then you just go out the other side. But rather, it's, when you hear it, uh, see it in the scriptures that those are things that are above the earth and things below the earth, well, what's below the earth is not just at the center of the earth, it's under this reality of physical, material earth. There is a reality, a spiritual reality. And there's a lower spiritual reality and there's a higher spiritual reality. And there's even higher spiritual realities in heaven. And Paul refers to being caught up into the third heaven. So there's a lot of metaphysics going on here. I'm not, that's what, it's called a rabbit trail. Okay. So he says to these uh, the, that this uh, eternal, everlasting fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. So the goats are not lost because they failed to love others. They failed to love others because they were lost. Well, this has implications in a lot of practical ways. You know, thieves don't steal. Thieves are not thieves because they steal. Thieves steal because they are thieves. That's biblical. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's not a matter of just stop doing that. That's not going to solve the problem. I could tie your hands and put you in jail and you'll still be a thief, even though you have no opportunity to steal. But it's the change of heart that turns the thief into someone who, who earns and shares as he should. And so we, when we understand it this way, we realize that it's not an issue of what you've done or what you haven't done. It's whether you've been born again or whether you haven't been born again. These people walked past every opportunity they had to show love for their neighbor because they were unconverted, unreborn. They hadn't yet been saved. And now it's too late. The good works that they failed to do will now damn them to hell. And you say, well, that sounds like works salvation. No. That is an observation that the things that they failed to do were a response, a result of the condition of their hearts before God. And the only solution for that would be to be born again and have a new heart, a new spirit, and to have the Holy Spirit in their lives. So can you see the Levite and the priest standing there on the left hand of the king with all the other goats? Can you see them? And their response, without the new birth, we cannot see that loving our neighbor is our opportunity to show love for God. And so <clears throat> they answer also, like the sheep, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? and did not minister to you. 
Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So our ability to see the image of God, the Imago Dei, in others, not just our fellow believers, but in all human beings, this ability is our ability to see and enter and seek the kingdom of God as we should. This ability to see will affect every aspect of our lives. Our new birth, which comes with our new heart and our new spirit, will cause us to walk in God's statutes, as we see in Ezekiel 36 and verse 27. God doesn't coerce us into doing these things. We are not automatons. We're not robots. We have a free will in the sense that we are choosing all the time what to do. But our will is bound by our nature. Now, this is an important point. If we take a a wolf and we put that wolf into a cage with a bale of hay, that wolf will starve to death, even though he's got a whole bale of hay there to eat. Why? Because it's not his nature to eat hay, he wants meat. And because he wants what he wants, and he can't change what he wants because he doesn't want to, he's stuck. He has free will to do whatever he wants. He just can't want to do anything other than eat meat. Now we take a lamb and put it into a cage with a nice big steak, and that that lamb will starve to death because it's not the nature of the lamb to eat meat. Because it wants what it wants, and it can't change what it wants, because it doesn't want to. And that's why we need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be given a new heart that wants to do what's pleasing to God. We need to have a new spirit that wants to please God. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And without those elements of our salvation, we are trapped in our free will to do whatever we want. And so God doesn't make us change our will. He simply gives us the new heart, the new spirit, and that causes us to walk in his statutes. We do what's pleasing to God, not in order to be saved, but because now we are saved. Do you see the difference? Now, it is this ability or inability to see and enter the kingdom of God that sends a person either to heaven or hell because it is the new birth or the lack of that new birth that is the force behind it all. Matthew 25, verse 46, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We know that no one gets eternal life unless they have been born again. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish like these folks perish in everlasting punishment, but shall have everlasting life. And so it is that new birth that Jesus explained to Nicodemus that makes the difference. That's what believing on the Lord Jesus Christ does. It causes you to be born from above. It is God's way of giving you the free gift of salvation. So the sheep on God's right hand are called the righteous, and they go into eternal life because they showed loving kindness to their neighbors in their time of need, and they did that because they were born again. This good neighborliness can only be the inevitable result of having been born again from above as a child of God. I'm big on prepositions. We are children of God. We're the result of God's activity. We're not the result of the world's activity. We're not of the world. We are of God. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. 
And so we live in this world as those who have become the result of God's activity in our lives, not our own and not the world's. So this way of being is our salvation. We need to be careful that we don't come to this idea that you know, salvation all, is all about just being forgiven. It's not just being rescued from the wrath to come. It's being commissioned for the good works you have been assigned to do. You're not just saved from something. You're saved for something. And so, in Ephesians 2, verse 8 again, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, we are of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, we cannot boast in our ability to see the kingdom of God. It's a gift by which God has prepared us to do good works and he's prepared good works for us to do. But the good works that God has prepared for us to do are going to involve loving others in the way that they need to be loved. And this is important. What works has God prepared beforehand for us to do? How does that work? We know that he has prepared good works for us to do and he's prepared us to do those good works, but how does that all work? God has prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in. Now listen, by giving us back to the very same relationships we had all along. Remember, the kingdom of God is a set of right relationships moving through time. And our relationships with our neighbors, including our family members as neighbors, remember any other person in this world is is your neighbor, They may also be a family member. They may be an employer or an employee. But they are somebody that you can honor the goodness, honor the the image of God in by showing kindness and love to them. Now, we don't need a new set of relationships with new people. We are commissioned by God to eagerly love those we already have. So the born-again husband doesn't say, I need, I need a new wife to love. No, you go back and love the, the wife you've got. Love her into the kingdom. We, we don't need new kids. We, we love the kids we've got. I used to be a terrible father. Now I'm going to be a father who, who's going to father my kids the way God fathers his children. I'm going to start to be both loving and kind, but also firm and, and, and exercising discipline. I'm going, to, I'm going to relate to all these people in my life in a whole new way. Because now I've got a whole new heart and a whole new spirit. And I can see the image of God in every one of these people. And I am going to love that person as though that person was God himself. Christ himself. Do you see what a fun adventure this is? This is where the kingdom of God it becomes the playground of a loving heart. It's not always easy, but it's an investment well worth making. So the new believer, to the new believer, Jesus says, go home to your friends and start responding to what they need. In Mark chapter 5 and verses 18 and 19, uh, this, this guy gets set free from his uh, demons. And he says, I want to follow you. I want to be one of your disciples. And Jesus says, no, you go home and you tell your friends what the Lord has done for you. Now, I think there were people in his village that came to Christ because this guy went home. And in a similar way, all of us are are commissioned to turn to the relationships that have been there all along and start loving them. Start responding to what they need. So, what might our neighbors need? It's not always the same. But James says in chapter 2 and verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Talk is cheap, right? Talk is cheap. But James says, 
but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is not trying to undermine our salvation by grace through faith alone. He's simply saying, if your faith is not animating you in responding to the needs of those around you, then you don't trust Christ enough to actually obey him. And I don't think that saves you. (laughs) And I'm not saying the obeying saves you. I'm saying trusting Christ enough to obey him saves you. Okay? If your faith is just, you know, lip service, it's just words with no action behind it, and James would say, what good is that? So if they have no food, they need food. If they have no clothing, they need clothing. If they have no true friends, they need a faithful friend. And if they do not have Jesus, they need to hear and believe the gospel. And so we come to the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel because this is the most basic of all human needs and it is the most basic of all human rights to hear and have opportunity to believe and and to obey or to reject the gospel. Everyone has the absolute right to hear the gospel. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and he says go and preach this gospel. No earthly authority has any ability to countermand that commandment. We have the obligation to obey Christ even in the face of death. Because the people on the other side of that wall or the other side of that border, they have a human right to hear the gospel. And Jesus, the king of the universe, has said go. So responding to the needs of our neighbor is going to include the gospel. In every case, our loving one's neighbor is responding to his need as we understand it. Now, need is the key that unlocks the coffers of Christ's church. Not want, but need. And we, f- we find this in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Oh, great. So where is it? Go sell your possessions and give to the needy. I did not see that coming. You know, I'm thinking, hey, the father's given me the kingdom. Wow. So how's that work? Hmm, Go sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. That's not what I signed up for. I thought I was going to be a king's kid, get a Cadillac maybe, you know, have a big mansion, uh, you know, get to name it and claim it, get to, you know, blab it and grab it, whatever. That's what I thought Christianity was. A way to get rich. Christianity is not a way to get rich. Christianity is a way to make a good income and then give it away. Because that's pleasing to God. Acts chapter 4 and verse 34. And there was not a needy person among them. Why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses did what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. They sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold in order to meet the needs of anyone in the new fledgling church there in Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this. We can get into the whole Ananias and Sapphira story. But the fact is, this was not a commune they were living in. This was simply a culture of radical generosity toward one another, a willingness to uh, sell what you don't need. Remember, there's the word need. Sell what you don't need in order to give to those who need something. And that is consistent throughout the scriptures. The coffers of Christ's church are not the church's bank account. 
The coffers of Christ's church are the wallets and purses of God's people. It is you, when you engage with somebody and discover they have a need, then within your means, you are to meet that need. And if you can't meet the need, then you recruit others to help you meet that need. But there should not be a needy one among us. Is there a needy one among us? Do we know? How how many of you are struggling with something and you haven't told us? How many of you are are having difficulty paying a bill and and we don't know? See, how can we know what your need is if you don't tell us? We don't want you to silently suffer and say, well, I know God knows my need. And if he wants to take care of it, he will. Well, he's taking care of it right now with this message. God is mobilizing the body of Christ to respond to the needs within our own members and also the needs of those who are our neighbors out there in the community. And we are to be a generous people, not in order to get rich, but God has a way of replenishing our resources as we begin to use them as we should. Do you want a bigger, nicer house? The way to get one is to wear it out for the Lord. Wear it out to the point where God looks down and says, I've got to give them a bigger place. I mean, this is ridiculous, you know? These people are using their, what they've got so aggressively. They're just, you know, running the wheels off that car. I need to help them get a better, newer car, maybe a, a nicer house. Not in order for them to live more comfortably, but for them to have more room to keep doing what they're doing. That's the way it works in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a place to get rich. It is a place to earn a a good income so that you have something to share with others in their need. And so, the church does have a bank account, by the way, and we can and do tap into it to respond to the needs of others. But we have to know what those needs are. So please, do not hide your need. Look at it this way. Your need is our opportunity to invest in eternal treasure. Your need is our opportunity to honor the image of God in you by treating you the way we should treat Jesus if he were in the same situation. So don't deprive us of that opportunity. Tell us. Tell us where it hurts. Tell us where you're struggling. Share with us how we can help and let us play our part as a local church. We will become a strong, numerically larger, much more effective local church if we begin to live this way. The strategy is not to go out and shake the bushes and just try to to add bodies to the congregation, but rather to add members to the body. And then the body is the delivery system for the ministry of this church. The elders and the deacons are not the the delivery system for the ministry. We're like that little candle under the hot dish that just keeps it warm. We don't cook it, okay? We just keep it warm. You, the body, is the delivery system for the ministry of this church. You have surface contact with the world. And as we grow, and we will grow, We will grow by being more devoted to responding to the needs of others as though those others were Jesus himself. Taking from those who have need and giving to those who have no need is both foolish and offensive to God. You know, we we often hear sermons about giving And we'll use the widow's mite as an example of, you know, how she gave the last two little mites that she had. And uh, so there's a good example of, of giving. So what we're basically saying is we want the poor to give so that uh, we can give more to the rich. That's not what the Bible says. Proverbs 22, verse 16. He who oppresses the poor to increase his his riches... And he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. God intends for us, and and I experience this every day in my little terrarium shop. 
The wise person will be paid by the rich through wise business enterprise in order to have more to give to the poor in acts of charity. So you make your money off the rich, and then you share what you make with the poor. So I have uh, the opportunity in my little terrarium shop to charge big bucks for terrariums. And the rich come into my shop and they'll spend three or $400 for a terrarium, which is crazy, but they do it, okay? They do it because they want a nice, beautiful terrarium. And then the poor come in. It might be a teenager. He's, he hadn't done that much money at all. I love to shower that teenager with an opportunity to plant a nice terrarium for whatever he's got. If he's got five bucks, five bucks. They walk out so happy because, you see, they can't afford these terrariums. So I'm like Robin Hood. I steal from the rich and I give to the poor. Okay. No, I'm not stealing. They're agreeing to it, you know. They're, they're agreeing to it. They walk in and say, wow, I want that one. And I say, sure, and I ring it up. And then the poor person walks in and they say, oh, these are so beautiful, but I can't afford this. And I say, hey, I want you to have a terrarium. I want you to take one home. I want you to pick one out and we'll make it work. Do you see how that works? I believe God wants us to be looking for opportunities to maximize our income through legitimate business enterprise so that we have more to offer to those who are in need. Paul's instruction to the thief tells him exactly this. He says, let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Do you see the consistency of all of this? God wants us to have the proper motivation. And the proper motivation for our work is to earn more in order to have more to give to those who have need, to lay up as much of our treasure as we can in heaven and not upon the earth. So this is why Jesus taught us how to properly host a feast. How many times do you hear this passage preached on? Okay, Luke chapter 14, verse 12. And then he said... <laughs> He also said to him who invited him, he's saying this to his host, okay? Boy, this is really rude. He says, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall have be, repaired at the, be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now there's a party pooper for you, right? You got all these guests sitting around the table and enjoying the feast. And Jesus says, you know, you got all the wrong people here. <laughs> that is Jesus speaking the truth in love. Because if you live for, the, for eternity, if you live with the resurrection in mind, then you're going to, uh, in a very calculated way, try to put yourself in a place where you've got a great resurrection. When you believe in the resurrection as you should, you will be able to see and give as you should. It's a matter of faith walking by faith in a resurrection that's going to happen. And to the degree that you have done things for people in need who could not repay you, you will have laid up treasure in heaven. Am I reading this wrong? Is this not what it says? And so, no, I'm not saying you can't have your friends over for dinner. He's saying here, when you're going to throw a feast, if you want to throw a feast that lays up treasure in heaven, then go out of your way to bring in others who cannot repay you tit for tat by having you over to their place. In Galatians chapter 2, or chapter 6 and verse 2, we read that this, in fact, is the law of Christ. This is the basic law of Christ. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And again in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. 
For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Can you see how beautifully this ties it all together? The entire law is now fulfilled in us as we show our love for God by the way we love and care for one another, especially in our times of need. This is the ultimate purpose for our liberty, our tremendous liberty in Christ. Read what Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not being redundant here. God is. And this is God's word to you. If we use our liberty under the lordship of Christ to serve our own selfish and evil desires, we are committing high treason against the kingdom of God. The whole purpose for your liberty is for you to be a blessing to others. It is not for you to just pursue the satisfaction of your own carnal desires. This is how we know that we have passed from death to life, according to John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There it is again. The primary evidence that we have passed from death to life that is, that we have been born again, is that we now are able to see and understand that responding sacrificially to the needs of our neighbor is our opportunity to show our love for God. This is what we have been saved for. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the resurrection we're looking forward to. Who gave himself for us. Why? that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Doing these good works of being a good neighbor to our neighbors in their times of need is the fulfillment of God's purpose for redeeming us from our former life of sin. This is what it looks like to be saved. This is the way of love that is itself the kingdom of God. John 3, verse 3, And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So can you see the kingdom of God? Can you see it in the relationships around you? In the opportunities that you have? Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And I'll, I'll observe here, and they will flow through you to others in their times of need. God provides in order for us to provide. Are you seeking the kingdom of God? 
through right relationships? Are you investing in those relationships as a wonderful opportunity? Can you see your opportunity to show your love for God by the way you love your neighbor? Another way of putting all of this is have you been born again? Have you been born again? Because if you have not, then you will not be able, even if you decided you were going to try to clean up your life and, and do better, it won't, it won't last. But if we can get you into that place where you've got a new heart and a new spirit and the Holy Spirit, I guarantee you God will complete what he starts in your life. And he will bring you to maturity in Christ and you will bear this good fruit. Because your Heavenly Father is a really, really good Father. And he knows how to grow you up.